0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a story of espionage.
1: It turns out that during the Cold War, there were a lot of spies that then afterwards uh, become in search of a job. And it's a story of conflict. One of the things that you have to remember when you start a war and go after an enemy that, you know, you might need to dig two graves... And it's also a story of whether your ideas are indeed
0: your ideas.
1: Who invented what? What is a eureka moment? Who should get credit for successful products? But at its epicenter, this is the story of a woman with unattainable beauty. So we all know the very glamorous woman. She's affected our image of womanhood for generations.
0: That's Orly Lobel, a law professor at the University of San Diego, who has written about a figure of femininity who, at times, might seem overexposed, but whose past, in fact, is cloaked in mystery. A woman whose life, such as it is, has a lot to tell us about what we assume we own and what we then discover we don't. For a moment, though, let's revisit her central attribute beauty.
1: She's always been impossibly perfect and uh, anatomically incorrect uh, (laughs) features and sizes. Uh, There's even a Finnish research that shows that if she were a real woman, she would surely tip over because of the size of her breast and Mm. the fact that she couldn't fit any organs, internal organs, into that size of waist. The woman in question here,
0: probably not surprisingly, is Barbie.
1: What is it about Barbie that makes her so much fun? Mm-hmm.
0: What do you like best about Barbie? Her wonderful wardrobe. I like her clothes and she's got some bendable legs.
1: If you had Mattel's Barbie in some of her new outfits, just think of the fun you could have together. You can tell
0: she... But the other main character in this story may be far more interesting. His name is Carter Bryant. Barbie helped him achieve his dreams, but she also set up a war around him unlike anything he ever could have imagined.
1: He's always dreamt about being a fashion designer, but the second best in town when you can't really become a fashion designer just straight out of design school is to join this huge corporation that controls 90% of the toy industry.
0: And so that's what Bryant, who grew up in Missouri, did. He lived in L.A. in the late 1990s and served as a personal stylist to
1: Barbie. The whole Barbie department is a small army of designers and storytellers and marketing gurus. Really, one of the things that fascinated me about her history is how uh, Mattel was smart in hiring Freudian psychologist to convince mothers for the first time to buy their daughters this grown-up adult sexualized doll to play with and how she was disseminated. Someday I'm gonna
0: be exactly like you Till then I know just what I'll do Barbie, beautiful Barbie I'll make believe that I am
1: you. And then it really became much more than just the doll. It's a franchise. So, you know, we have all these different products and books and, and movies.
0: In some ways, once Carter Bryant got to Mattel, he'd arrived. Barbie was a huge juggernaut, and he helped control her look. But the problem was that she didn't ever really change. And Bryant decided and said that he wanted more which would turn out to be both his first brilliant move and his fatal mistake.
1: And he wants to design something newer. He wants to invent a more contemporary, multi-ethnic, more empowering, as he sees it, doll, for the 21st century. So that starts a huge battle because he's an employee of Mattel. Orling Lobel studied
0: Bryant's story for her book, You Don't Own Me, The Court Battles That Exposed Barbie's Dark Side. And she says that Bryant made his suggestions to Mattel, which was struggling with falling sales of the doll. The problem was they thought that having new products on the market would cannibalize sales of their golden girl, and they turned Bryant down.
1: So none of his ideas and none of the, you know, other his co workers' ideas seemed to go anywhere. And the question of when he comes up with this idea and when he works on it, that's that's a huge question that is litigated, and it's really hard to figure when, you know, Eureka happens in our minds and what inspired us, and, and that becomes really just fascinating, the way that it's each of the sides, each of the teams are trying to prove when that happened. But what he claims is that he's just inspired while he's away from Mattel By more realistic girls, he sees these real high school girls walking out of a high school in Missouri, where his hometown is, and he sketches, and then he uses, when he gets back to Mattel, he uses his weekends and nights to to develop something new that he thinks could have market success, And, and in fact, Bratz has huge market success. It's the first time ever in decades that a different doll outsells Barbie in the holiday season.
0: I like how you brats like that. I like, I like how you strut like that. I like, I like how you style. Ooh. How you mix and match like that. I like Chloe. Creating what became known as brat stalls was for Bryant where the nightmare began. Mattel claimed that he was thinking about brats on Mattel's time, and they own those ideas. Bryant insisted no, I did my work on vacations, at night, on the weekends. His partner testified that was true. His mother also testified that it was true. The thing is, it's kind of hard to say for certain when a thought crosses your mind, and it's absolutely impossible to prove. Which is a cautionary tale for anyone who works at a company and later, and I mean any time later, goes on to have an idea. But we'll get to that. At Mattel, Lobel says, the creation of brats meant war, and... Espionage.
1: There were claims that Mattel threatened toy stores and the um, companies that would hold, like Kohl's, Target, that would hold these two competitors, they would threaten them that they wouldn't do business with them if they held the competitor, which is definitely unlawful, but that was behind the scenes. They also, it turned out, engaged in economic espionage at the toy fair.
0: Mattel spent something like $400 million trying to crush Carter Bryant and Bratz dolls in the courts. During the epic case, an internal document was revealed in which Bratz dolls were described by Mattel as a, quote, rival-led Barbie genocide. And the memo argued, this is a war and sides must be taken. Barbie stands for good. All others stand for evil.
1: That, you know, that seemed extreme to the jury. I talked to jurors on the trial, and that seemed extreme to, I think, the, the judges that heard this case. It was embarrassing for the CEO of Mattel sitting there. He didn't want to sit there and hear, during discovery, you know, the evidence presented. There's what you just read as about the genocide. It was also, you know, part of a PowerPoint that had these, like, flames burning in the background. The great irony about Mattel coming down so hard on
0: Carter Bryant for maybe being inspired by one doll to create another was that Mattel itself had in large part copied a German doll when it created Barbie. And that German doll was highly sexualized and aimed at adults, not kids. So even if Carter Bryant's idea wasn't as original as he claimed, Barbie wasn't exactly an original idea either. During the court case, the lawyer for the company that made Bratz said to the Mattel CEO, Say I'm 18, doodling away. I place my doodles in my parents' house in one of the drawers in my teenage closet. Twenty years later, I'm hired by Mattel. I visit my parents' home and find the doodles. Does Mattel own them? Yes, probably yes, the CEO said. Mattel eventually
1: lost the court case. But for all practical purposes... So did Carter Bryant. I describe how he just lost his like his passion. You can see in the second trial a very different person coming in, and I describe this when he's questioned. He's, I mean, he he actually has health issues, and he disappears. He he goes. He loses all his the small fortune that he got from MGA for for giving them this idea. He gets out of the creative industries, and he was the most difficult person to actually track down.
0: Which leads us to a major question. If you have an idea and your company's not interested, and then you go and you pursue it yourself, and then they try to crush you, what does that say about Americans' ability to come up with new ideas?
1: Yeah, I think that is... Absolutely the key question that has motivated so much of my work. So really the background for writing You Don't Own Me has been that my previous book uh, is called Talent Wants to Be Free. And it it talks about kind of on the more academic level about how so much of our talent and so much of our innovation capacities are locked in to a single Corporation where we were working and 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 where we used to work uh, even even you know after we leave the the workplace and and that is what happens with Carter Bryant but again I think it happens and I see this I have been very much in in this field uh, for some years now and I'm I'm an expert witness in several cases in many different industries today that you join even straight out of college. Somebody who's really creative, really energetic, really innovative, has a lot of uh, passion and ideas. It's so standard that they join a company and they're signing away so much of their ability to then invent and innovate and create later on. And so these standard clauses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, is this like for the next five years
0: forever? How what are they signing away?
1: Right. So so it depends on what you're looking at. So the most blunt tool is a non-compete clause, which is a huge issue. And again, I, and with my book, Talent Wants to Be Free, I was invited in 2016 to the White House to present the findings of that book. And it resulted in President Obama issuing a call to the states to say, really, these non-competes have no justifiable reason. In most cases, these people are not given training or exposed to trade secrets, it's just to prevent competition and they should not be enforceable. So non-competes can be worded as, you know, for the next two years after you leave or the next three years, it depends on what the contract says. And beyond what the contract says, it doesn't mean that it's enforceable, but that's part of what I was saying before, that what matters more than what the courts will end up saying is how these practices affect the behavior of the large majority of people, just working in in creative industries and in all industries, they the people are usually risk averse and they can't fight these clauses and they don't want to be in breach and and risk litigations. And the whole battle in "You Don't Own Me" focuses on whether the weekends and nights—it's that that becomes kind of the the term that's used—whether the weekends and nights of creative employees are still owned by the corporation and Mattel said, Yeah, absolutely. Even even though you go home to your partner, what the corporation was claiming, and again you see this pattern, that nothing is your own time. And then the risk is that also after you leave, you know, how are you gonna prove that you only came up with the idea after you left mm-hmm. and that you haven't been using anything that you were inspired by during the time of your employment. And and my argument has been all along, and it still is, and I think that it's really a moment where we should care a lot about it because the thing that our economy is strong in and the thing that we're competing on a an international global level with the rest of the world is our ability to innovate and to be creative and to get you know to the next step. And it really creates a lot of confinement and impedes progress in arts and sciences, paradoxically, because, you know, our intellectual property regime has all been designed with the intention of incentivizing progress in arts and sciences. But I think that we are locked in too much and our brightest people are locked in too much to a single employer who's usually a a dominant competitor. And Mm -hmm. it really impedes not only that one employee from leaving, but new entry, you know, fresh blood, of entrepreneurs into stagnating markets
0: does that worry you the the notion that companies think that they can own I mean not just employ you and pay you but like can own the ideas in your head it just seems so broad as to be like wow that's a lot yeah it's a lot of ownership right
1: yeah. So, so you know, I see this, for example, a chef that works at a restaurant. You'll see sometimes his contract saying that even if he wants to write a book later on or appear on some reality show or, or do something else, and we're not talking about the secret recipes of that particular restaurant, but but just anything that's in that industry is off limits. And and so everybody should be worried again any artist any computer scientist any life scientist that if we overly claim what is owned by the single you know initial employer then we are locking up our talent we're locking up skills and opportunities to innovate we're locking up collaborations and networks and preventing the enrichment of knowledge net- networks because you know all the research shows that the way that each one of us becomes more creative, whether it's in entertainment and broadcasting and you know, content creation or in the tech and sciences, the way we become more creative is through interactions and exchanges and new positions and new blood that's fueled into teams. Orly Lobel is the author of You Don't Own Me, The Court Battles That
0: Exposed Barbie's Dark Side. She's a professor of law at the University of San Diego. Orly, thank you so much. Thank you, that was fun. You
1: don't
0: own me. And you can read more from Orling Lobel by heading to our website. There, we will have her take on those famous non disclosure agreements that President Trump has asked many of those around him to sign. That's at innovationhub.org. Also at our website, we'll link to the work of one of our former guests, historian Jill Napore, on the Barbie Court case. And amazingly, the more details that you get about this case, the harder it is to believe. You you don't don't down. I will never stay. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.